Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're just delighted uh, to get the privilege of worshiping with you today. And uh, my name's Randy. I'm the lead minister here at the church. Um, and I really hope that you sense God's unchanging love. There's so much that's changing in our world these days. Uh, what can we count on? You can count on this truth of God's unchanging love for us. And I, I want you to sense that. I want you to feel that this morning, too. Uh, now, we're in a series, a teaching series here at the church uh, over the New Testament book of Acts. And um, so I read an article recently uh, during my morning routine. I don't know if you have a routine in the morning. I, my routine is, is, you know, having breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and then I read, uh, I read uh, the News Gazette because I want to know what's going on locally. And then I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal and I subscribe to the New York Times, and the truth is somewhere in between. And, uh, but um, the New York Times lists the most widely read article each year. And so last year, an election year, the most widely read article in the New York Times had absolutely nothing to do with politics. It was an article titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. <laughs> um, the author uh, is Alan DeBotton. He wrote it. He argues that in the Western world, we have opted for marriage based on a romanticist idea that there exists one other human being out there whose sole purpose is to make me happy and meet my needs. Uh, Alan DeBotton says that's fantasy. That's a myth. And the reality is that people are broken and wounded and imperfect. And because of this, problems emerge when we try to get close to one another. So Alan DeBotton writes, we seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would be, and how are you crazy? <laughs> but because we're blind to our own brokenness, whenever casual relationships threaten to reveal our flaws, we blame the other person and call it a day. Even our friends don't care enough to do the hard work of enlightening us. And one of the unfortunate side effects of being on our own is the fantasy that we are really quite easy to live with. What we need, Alan DeBotton writes, is to swap the romantic view for a tragic, even comedic awareness that every human being at some point in life will frustrate anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we, without any malice, we'll do the same to them. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. Huh? Now, you know, Alan DeBotton describes himself as a gentle atheist. But I'm telling you, in that article, he's about that far from talking like a Christian. Because Christianity teaches that People are broken, and marriage is the joining of two broken people 
who live in a broken world, but God is faithful. Now, what does that have to do with our current teaching series over the New Testament book of Acts? Well, I propose that we retitle Alan DeBotton's article, Why You Will Join the Wrong Church. You see, many of our Western romanticist ideas about marriage have drifted into other relationships, and church relationships are among them. So, you know, we attend a church, and we get excited about the worship service and uh, the small groups and the family life ministry and uh, the missions trips, and oh, this church also pays attention to local outreach, and oh, the warmth, and oh, the welcome, and oh, the coffee, killer coffee. We both seem normal to one another because we don't know each other very well yet. But after a while, the euphoria wears off, and we wonder about the value of things like small groups, or we wonder, well, now, why are we supporting financially that missionary? And we begin to think, well, the preaching's just too intellectual, or it's not intellectual enough, or I wish it were more topical, or I'd like it to be more verse by verse, or the preaching's too long, or the preaching's too short. I get that a lot. And what would be helpful to remember is that every church, including this church, is comprised of sinful, broken, fallen people. And to paraphrase Alan DeBotton, if you stick around here long enough, someone in this church family will frustrate you, anger you, annoy you, madden you, and or disappoint you. And guess what? You, without any malice, will do the same. When that happens, when that happens, that moment right then and there is an opportunity for love to take place because now we're meeting the real people. So what does that kind of love look like? Well, today I want to talk about what our church leaders, and by that I mean our, our elder leadership team, our ministerial team, staff team, our core leaders here at the church, want to talk about how we respond to the brokenness when it appears in our church family. When someone's imperfection gets splashed all over your shiny new shoes, what's good leadership about? What do we do? Well, we follow some leadership principles that work in our circle, and I believe that they'll work in your circle, in your circle at the office, in your work group team. I believe they'll work at home, in your family, um, with your children, with your spouse, if you happen to be married. Those principles are found in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there, and you'll find that on page 914 of your church Bibles. Now, the book of Acts is very transparent about the brokenness that exists between believers. This is real life. And in these verses, some of the most vulnerable members of the church community, the widows, they were being slighted in the distribution of care. And the result of this is not just hurt feelings. The result of this has to do with physical well-being. 
So as we look through these verses this morning, here's how I'd like to, here's the path I'd like for us to take. I'd like for us to look at the problem and then discover what the solution to the problem was. And then I have a question for us and then some lessons. All right? So that's where we're going. Problem, solution, question, lessons. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Follow along with me. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte, that means a convert. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. So as you can see, the church is in a season of growth here. The gospel is going out, and more and more are coming to faith. 3,000 came to the Lord in Acts chapter 2, 5,000 more in Acts chapter 4. And by the time we get to Acts 6, Luke is almost frustrated because he's just lost count. He simply describes the growth as the number of disciples multiplied greatly. But this is not some picture-perfect, romanticized community here. While growth is happening, there's persecution, corruption, dissension. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, there's been persecution. The religious enemies have arrested and detained and warned the apostles Peter and John. And then later, they arrested and had the apostles beaten. In addition to the persecution, there's been corruption. A deceptive couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Lord and tried to use his church as a platform for their personal glory. And they died trying. Persecution, corruption, and now dissension. Verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, let's define some terms here. First, Hellenists. What does that term mean? Well, Hellenists describe folks who are Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. So at one time, their ancestors had left Israel and spread out over um, what is then the Roman Empire. Some of them returned to Israel. But their first language isn't Hebrew. It's Greek. And because of that, their culture is Greek. 
because you can't separate language from culture. Furthermore, they're a minority in Jerusalem. Now, who's the majority? Well, the Hebrews. These are Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. They're the townies. They're, they've not left Jerusalem or Israel. Their family has always been, uh, this has always been their home. Both groups were at Pentecost. Both groups came to Christ. And the church is experiencing oneness and unity and strength and power. They're meeting in uh, house churches and homes. They're meeting at the temple. They're a multicultural and multi-generational community, thus the widows. And, and so this leads us to the problem. Some of the widows from the Greek-speaking Christians have been neglected in the daily distribution. That's the distribution of, of benevolent care, that resources to the under-resourced. And some of the widows have been neglected, a word that means overlooked due to insufficient attention. So there's no willful neglect going on here. There's just neglect. And because of this, Luke says that a gangusmas arose. A gangusmas. A gangusmas. That sounds serious. Well, it is. It's a complaint. Can you hear complaint in gangusmas? The 12. You don't have to be able to speak Greek to know what a gangusmas is. So the 12 summoned the entire number of disciples together. So we had a, thousands gathered. In verse 2, they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, those of us restaurant-eating Americans read this and think, well, what makes these 12 so high and mighty? They can't do the dishes. That's not what this is saying. The phrase to serve tables is a word picture. It's a metaphor for social work, for benevolence, for the distribution of resources to the under-resourced. And in first century Judaism, uh, in Judaism, they had quite a, a, a system that provided weekly and even daily care. Well, you can imagine, even if this were modified uh, to the church, this takes time and energy. And the apostles are not above doing this. Well, here's what they're saying. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. It's not your problem. It's our problem. There are thousands now in our church family. And there are 12 of us. As apostles, we are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Our primary ministry is about gospel proclamation of life in and through Christ, by grace through faith in Christ. We are witnesses of the resurrected Christ, and the ministry of apostleship is not renewable. Once the eyewitnesses of the risen Christ have died, the, the office of apostleship won't be replenished. We do not have the capacity to proclaim what we have seen and heard and manage the daily physical needs of our church's most vulnerable members. So it's not a willingness issue. It's a capacity issue. Help! So we'd like for you to choose seven from among yourselves. Make sure 
that they are seven of good reputation. Make sure that they have character because character always comes before talent. Make sure that the Holy Spirit's um, life is in and through them. Make sure that he's alive in their hearts. And make sure that they are full of wisdom. Because it's not enough to have character. You need competency. You need competent case managers. Full of the Spirit. Full of wisdom. Full of good reputation. Choose the seven. Present them to us. We'll appoint them. Pray over them. Delegate the authority to them to fulfill this mandate. Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. So do you see what the apostles did here? Just as God the Father sent his son and the son sent the 12, so now the 12 are sending out others. And verses 5 and 6 say, What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, why did Luke include their names? Well, remember, this is an eyewitness account. And these names are like research footnotes. So Luke is saying, you know, you can go find any of these seven. They'll tell you what happened here. But there's something else going on in these verses. All of these names are Greek names. So the apostles said, Greek-speaking Christians, we want you to feel safe around your servant leaders. So choose your leaders with the stipulation that they are of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And it's very possible that some of the seven were Hebrews with Greek names. And so what may have emerged, in fact, what likely emerged was a multicultural leadership team, a predominantly Greek multicultural leadership team that would model before the multicultural church how spiritually healthy relationships work in the family of God. These seven were set before the twelve who prayed over them, laid their hands on them, and set them apart for this work. Problem? The apostles hear complaints about a neglected minority group. Solution? The apostles promptly resolve the issue with good leadership. And that leads to the question, when inevitable problems arise, not if, not maybe, but when inevitable problems arise between imperfect people in God's family, what's good leadership? What does good leadership do uh, when those inevitable circumstances arise? Well, four lessons here. Lesson number one. Good leaders are willing to have their lives interrupted by the complaints of others without getting mad or impatient. You see, good leaders see complaints as opportunities, opportunities for leadership. Good leaders think no complaints, no opportunities. No complaints, no growth. No complaints, no intimacy. Because you see, conflict Conflict is really about intimacy. Really is when you're talking about relationships. 
No complaints, no profits. No complaints, no harvest. No harvest. I'm thinking about Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Do you hear the logic in that verse? <laughs> abundant crops require oxen. Oxen live in stalls. Oxen don't clean up after themselves, do they? Someone must muck out the stalls. That someone is the leader. That's the deal. That's the deal. Now, here's often what happens. It's happened in my life too many times. A leader's life gets interrupted by a complaint. See? Gets interrupted. See, I have a routine. I have a routine. And that routine got interrupted by a complaint. But instead of interpreting the complaint as a moment of ministry... Well, sometimes I interpret it as a moment of inconvenience. And whenever we hear someone's complaint as a moment of inconvenience, we'll tend to personalize the complaint. And when we personalize what was never intended to be personal, we end up becoming adversarial in our response. And, and when we become adversarial in our response, we then settle for surface-level solutions that never get to the heart of the matter. I don't like my life to be complicated. I don't like it when my plans are interrupted. And I don't enjoy having to deal with problems that I've not anticipated. But good leadership imitates Jesus, who was willing to enter this broken world. He knew what he was getting into. He knew he was going to be facing all kinds of complications in this fallen world in order to meet our greatest need, which is life. Abundant life. New life. And one of the greatest challenges of loving leadership is the willingness to abandon our demand for a comfortable and predictable life and instead to find greater joy in meeting the needs of others. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's good leadership. Lesson number two. Good leaders take initiative to solve problems while the problems are manageable. Hmm? Now notice in verses 1 through 7, verse 1 is the problem and the rest is the solution. So the apostles are to be commended for, they didn't procrastinate the problem away. They didn't hope it would go away on its own. They didn't wish it away. They dealt with it. They ate the frog. They ate the frog. Years ago, I read a little book by a, a, a business person named Brian Tracy called Eat That Frog. Eat That Frog. He said, it's been said that if the first thing you do each morning is to eat a live frog, you can go through the day with the satisfaction of knowing that that is probably the worst thing that's going to happen to you all day long. <laughs> so your frog... Your frog is your biggest, most important task, and it's the one you're most likely to procrastinate on if you don't do something about it. And it's also the one task that can have the greatest possible impact on your life and results at the moment. Eat that frog. And, and Brian Tracy says, if you have to eat two frogs, eat the ugliest one first. 
right? And then he says this, if you have to eat a live frog at all, it doesn't pay to sit there and look at it for very long. The frog doesn't get smaller or tastier or prettier the longer it sits there. What's your frog? What is it that you're procrastinating right now? Is it a conversation, a hard conversation? Is it a phone call? Is it a letter? Is it a project? Is it a paper? And what are the potential consequences of doing or not doing this? And what's going to change between now and the time that you know you're going to need to act? Well, then why don't you just get on it right now? Eat that frog. Uh, Tracy says there's never enough time to do everything, but there's always enough time to do the most important thing. Good leaders take initiative to solve problems while the problems are manageable. That's lesson two. Lesson three is this. Good leaders make people make decisions. Okay? Uh, this is really big because we read these verses and we've come from an American system of you know, organizational leadership and we look at these verses through that system. But you must understand, in the ancient world, those in power typically ignored the complaints of the minority. And they did so so that those in power could stay in power. And theirs was a culture of honor. So what's happening here is revolutionary. In a typical Roman culture, um, you know, the, those in power would make an issue about the gongusmas, the complaint, and they would take it as a personal attack. And so then they would have to defend their honor. But the apostles don't do that. They're servant leaders. Instead of defending their honor to a grumbling minority, the apostles empowered the minority culture. Here, this matters. This is real. You know, we will delegate to you the authority to resolve this. You're now in charge of the checkbook. We trust you, and that's huge. So, you know, they're, they are, in fact, delegating. And while it's true that there are some leaders who, you know, even today, they don't want to give up the reins. At other times, there are followers who are afraid to take the reins. And, you know, perhaps they don't want to make a mistake or... They're afraid to risk failure or disappointment. And, and so they end up delegating up. If you're the boss, maybe you've experienced this. And your direct report comes to you, knock on your door, asking you to make a decision for them that you know that they're capable of making. You know this. And, you know, they're, they're wanting to delegate up. And... So I want you to think of their issue or their question like a frog, okay? They're bringing their frog to you. They want you to eat their frog. And because you're trying to be a nice boss, you've been eating their frog. And this goes on all day long. And by the end of the day, You've got 20 frogs croaking on your desk. 
leaving you frustrated and exasperated and overwhelmed. Don't take their frog. Don't let those who report to you delegate to you the decisions they are responsible for making. Make sure that those who report to you walk out of your office with their frog. And one way to cure this is that when they bring a frog to you, you know, ask, ask them how they should prepare it. Would you like that grilled? Would you like that basted? How would you like that, you know? In other words, ask them to bring a solution or two. Um, one boss put it this way. This boss had a direct report. Let's call him Mike. And Mike, fully competent, fully capable, just lacking a little confidence. And so, you know, Mike comes into the boss's office and, you know, I, you know I'm not sure what do you want to do. And, and, and boss knows Mike's fully capable. And, and, and finally, the boss does this, comes out from around the desk, and I, I know some of you are going to miss this, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway, lays down in front of Mike, just like this on his back, okay? You can't see me, but I, I hope you can hear me. Can you still hear me? Huh? Say yes. All right. Lies on his back, puts his arm across his chest, and says to Mike, Mike, what would you do if I were dead? Mike is like, What? What would, you, what would you do if I were dead? You mean about this issue? About this issue. What would you do if I were dead? And Mike says, well, I, I, I would do this. This is what I would do. And the boss says, that sounds good to me. Let's go with that. Good leaders make people make decisions. Lesson three. Lesson four. Good leaders prepare themselves. Good leaders prepare themselves. Now, I've been talking so far from the perspective of the apostles. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a boss. I'm, this doesn't really apply to me. Well, this point does because this is from the perspective of the seven. You see, it's not as if the seven waited until there was a problem and then decided to become uh, people of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. They already were. They already were. So the question is, how are you living these days to prepare yourself for some future unknown responsibility that absolutely requires good reputation, being full of the Spirit, and the presence of wisdom? These seven publicly led because they were privately prepared. And when the problem came, they were ready. Because you see, it's not a problem if you're prepared. If you're prepared, you know what to do because you've been equipped. That's these seven. How does that show up in your life? Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that our deacon ministry here at Windsor Road is based on these verses right here. And our deacons meet, um, and they meet monthly for prayer and Bible study, and then who do we need to help in the congregation today who can't help themselves? And my vision and our church family 
would be that God would raise up not just one, uh, not just one multicultural deacon team, but multiple deacon teams and deaconess teams serving, problem solving, doing deed ministry so that our elders and ministerial staff can, can dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And, uh, you know, I want to just take a moment here to recognize our deacons. Some of them are in first service. You won't see all of them. But if, if you serve on our deacon team, uh, would you please stand? Just stand. We want to see you. Yeah. There we go. God be praised. of these seven end up taking on more responsibility. We read about them as the book of Acts unfolds. Stephen and Philip sharing Christ, preaching Christ, and yes, in Stephen's case, dying for Christ. But look what happened because of good leadership. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. Luke says that very intentionally. And the word of God continued to increase. So it's as if the word has a life of its own. And as we get out of the way and let the word have its way, life change happens. It wasn't as if the apostles were trying to engineer church growth. Jesus, the word made flesh, is now by his spirit growing his church. And look Many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 7. Once enemies of the faith, these were the same priests who in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, were annoyed with the preaching of the gospel and the apostles. But they were once enemies of Christianity. Now they're a part of God's family. Why? Because they witnessed Christ in you, the hope of glory. They saw good leaders. They saw that good leaders act for the good of others in the name of Christ. They saw good leaders like Christ willing to have their lives complicated and interrupted without anger or impatience. They saw good leaders like Christ who acted promptly and took initiative. We love because he first loved us. They saw good leaders like Christ who did not hold on to power. He, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. They saw good leaders who prepared in the daily mundane. Jesus, 30 years in virtual anonymity, before he burst onto the scene and in three and a half years changed the world. They saw in the face of good leaders the very face of Christ. And my prayer, my prayer is whatever brokenness has been splashed on your life today, 
whatever problem you're facing today, you will find the solution, the solution in Christ. And it may just be that the person that you would least suspect, you look into their eyes and you see nothing less but the face of Jesus. Amen.